Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we discuss fantasy and explore the important role that it plays in our psychological life. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. When you observe the world, you see people, you see houses, you see the sky, you see tangible objects. But when you observe yourself within, you see moving images, a world of images generally known as fantasies. Yet these fantasies are facts. You see, it is a fact that a man has such and such a fantasy, such a tangible fact that when a man has a certain fantasy, another man may lose his life, or a bridge may be built. These houses were all fantasies. Everything you do here, all the houses, everything was fantasy to begin with. And fantasy has a proper reality. This should not be forgotten. Fantasy is not nothing. It is, of course, not a tangible object, but it is a fact, nevertheless. In the first episode of this season, titled The Struggle of the Creative Life, I made the following statement. Everything is infused with a particular fantasy that we bring to it, and the nature of that fantasy determines, to a great extent, our experience of the thing in question. And I want to follow up on that statement here and dig a little deeper into what this means. Most of the time when we hear the word fantasy, we think of something unreal right? Unrealistic, maybe even foolish, and very likely false. After all, the word fantasy suggests something fantastic, that is, something exaggerated, something beyond belief. But Jung, in our opening quote, gives a somewhat surprising description of this aspect of our mental life. He makes the claim that fantasies are facts. Fantasy is not nothing, he says. It is, of course, not a tangible object, but it is a fact, nevertheless. Now, when Jung calls a fantasy a fact, he's not saying that 
any stray imagining is literally real. He's not saying that if someone imagines an interaction with an angel, for instance, that it necessarily means that angels have a metaphysical reality. What he's saying is that fantasies are psychological realities, and they have actual effects in the world. And we can understand this in two ways. First, that the activity of fantasy is undeniably real. So far, so good, right? It's easy enough to understand that when someone is engaged in a fantasy, there is some activity taking place in that person's imagination. It's actually happening. But the second layer of what he's pointing to is even more to the point, and it's this. The nature of one's fantasy, that is, its content, its images, its emotions, its intensity, and so on, not only has significance, but it also has real-world consequences. And this is what Jung means when he makes that dramatic assertion, it is a fact that a man has such and such a fantasy, such a tangible fact that when a man has a certain fantasy, another man may lose his life. Our fantasies, in other words, whether they are conscious or unconscious, whether they are rooted in reality or spun from whole cloth out of our own imagination, shape our experience of reality and lead us into action. Action that will inevitably impact others on some level, for good or for ill, often regardless of our conscious intentions. There's a parable from a Taoist text called the Lietzu that describes the way that fantasy can color and even falsify reality. And it goes like this. There was once a man who lived in the state of Qi and who had a burning lust for gold. Rising early one morning, he dressed and put on his hat and went down to the marketplace where he proceeded to seize and carry off the gold from a money changer's shop. He was arrested by the police, who were puzzled to know why he had committed the theft at a time when everybody was about. When I was taking the gold, he replied, I did not see anybody at all. What I saw was the gold, and nothing but the gold. Because fantasy can be so divergent from observable and sensual reality, it tends to be something that we can disparage or dismiss. Right? We imagine that, like in the case of the man with the lust for gold, our fantasies deceive us somehow, and therefore they're a kind of mental habit that must be overcome. We should outgrow our childish tendency for fantasy and replace it with a strong and sober reality principle. 
Indeed, this was essentially the goal of psychoanalysis as Freud originally conceived it. Where id was, there ego shall be, he famously stated. The id being that realm of instinctual drives and urges that reveal themselves in dreams and fantasies and which threaten to swamp the psyche with their power. Well, the ego is the floodgate, so to speak, charged with holding the id in check. From this perspective, fantasy is often understood as a kind of displacement or a substitute when one is unable to get one's desires met in real life. In her book, Invisible Guests, depth psychologist Mary Watkins pinpoints the problem of this position when she writes, from the psychoanalytic point of view, it would seem that were reality more adequate, imagination might cease to dream. And this is just the point. Imagination does not cease to dream. We never outgrow the fantasy activity of the psyche. Jung acknowledges that there are times when fantasy is unhealthy, when, like in our parable, it can blind us to reality. But Jung is also quite clear that fantasy has inestimable value for human life. And to this end, he writes, it is true that there are unprofitable, futile, morbid, and unsatisfying fantasies whose sterile nature is immediately recognized by every person endowed with common sense. But the faulty performance proves nothing against the normal performance. All the works of man have their origin in creative imagination. What right, then, he asks, have we to disparage fantasy. In the normal course of things, fantasy does not easily go astray. It is too deep for that. So the Jungian view of fantasy is ultimately a positive one, right? It recognizes that this is an inherent mode of psychological functioning, and if we can develop a right relationship with it, then we can discover its enlivening and even developmental potential. For despite its problems, it is, as Jung says, the source of all our art and architecture, all our science and technology, all our most lofty philosophical ideas, our highest conceptions of beauty, and our capacity to wonder about the meaning of life. And the truth is that we are engaged in our fantasies all the time. What we call thinking is often the spinning out of fantasy activity. And perhaps most often this takes a symptomatic form through worry or rumination. Any intense emotional state will trigger a stream of fantasy, such as when we're angry at someone and we imagine letting them have it, for example. And the moment we start to speculate about another person's motives, good or bad, we are fantasizing. And in our fantasies, we can imagine possible futures, 
or we can get stuck in the past. Jung understood all of this as being on the same continuum as the dream. In sleep, fantasy takes the form of dreams, he wrote. But in waking life, too, we continue to dream beneath the threshold of consciousness, especially under the influence of repressed or other unconscious complexes. In other words, we are always immersed in a fantasy or dream state that is having consequential effects in our lives. Jung's insight here has been echoed in more recent years in the neurosciences, where the ubiquity of unconscious mental activity structured around emotional experience, what Jung calls complexes, is now fully recognized. There's even a similar recognition of the continuity of waking consciousness and dreaming, as when the neuroanatomists Linus and Pare state that wakefulness may be described as a dreamlike state modulated by sensory experience. And all of this has important implications for the practice of the symbolic life. And we can see this in the fact that virtually every religious tradition addresses in some form the role of the mind in the shaping of our experience. The work of meaning, it turns out, requires a proper awareness of this level of our human experience, which means a proper relationship with our own minds and imaginations. So here's one example of this, taken from the Buddhist tradition. And these are the opening verses of the text known as the Dhammapada. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows, as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. Now to be sure, the intent of these lines from the Dhammapada is not identical with Jung's ideas on the value of fantasy, but I think there are important points of contact between them. Many of the practices of religion have to do with stopping the fantasy activity of the mind and trying to see clearly. That is the point, for instance, of the Taoist story I told earlier. And it's this perspective that is often found in discussions of meditation and prayer. We hear about the need to slow down the monkey mind, for instance, or to develop a pure heart, or to learn to see with a beginner's mind, 
And these techniques have been employed for thousands of years, so we have no reason to doubt their validity and efficacy. They are useful and they are potent. But Jung's approach adds something different to this picture. He doesn't talk about stopping fantasy, but engaging it. I try to funnel the fantasies of the unconscious into the conscious mind, not in order to destroy them, but to develop them, he says. And while this may seem to be the opposite approach to those of the religions, in truth, it is complementary, for it's not possible to develop our fantasies unless we are first capable of setting some limits around them. And another name for limitation here might be attention. Something has to be noticed and separated out of the mass of mental events in order for us to begin to really see it, let alone to work with it. In other words, we have to stop the constant movement of the imagination long enough to become aware of what story it is that is telling itself in our experience of the moment. Until that act of stopping our fantasy, we are identified with it, right? It's running us, and we can't tell the difference between the desire and intention of the fantasy and our own consciously developed desires and intentions. And then it plays out like a fate that drags us along, often against our wishes. And this is how Ralph Waldo Emerson describes it. He says, As a ship aground is battered by the waves, so we, imprisoned in our mortal life, lie open to the mercy of coming events. But a truth, separated by the intellect, is no longer a subject of destiny. We behold it as a god upraised above care and fear. And so any fact in our life or any record of our fancies or reflections disentangled from the web of our unconsciousness becomes an object impersonal and immortal. And what Emerson is describing here is what I have talked about before on this podcast as seeing the archetypal within the personal, discovering the universal story that we are living and that is living itself through our lives. This is the crucial means by which our lives become infused with meaning. It is by tending to and developing our fantasies that our inner lives are no longer subject to destiny, but rather participate in a kind of universal drama, impersonal and immortal, as Emerson writes. So what does it mean to develop our fantasies, and, and why should we do it? Well, I've already suggested one reason. Fantasy that is unconscious drags us along, while bringing consciousness to them allows us choice and flexibility in our responses to them and to life. 
But here, for our takeaway, I want to suggest another reason, which is that fantasy helps us to see. We are immersed in beauty, writes Emerson, but our eyes have no clear vision. Fantasy, I would say, can help us develop that vision. Fantasy can lift us up out of the mechanical and technical habit of mind of modern life in which we are too often drowned in the mere working out of the logistics of practical living. Fantasy can restore us to imagination and creativity, to beauty and possibility. In other words, it can restore us to the soul. Recognizing that we live in stories of which we are often unaware, that fantasies are always going on in our imaginations, can help us to deliteralize our own thoughts. Do we really believe everything that we think? Or can we begin to question them, get curious about them, even push back on them? In episode two of this season, Encountering the Archetype, I spoke about coming into relationship with the numinous energies of the psyche, and it is with this kind of questioning of our own thoughts that such a relationship is begun. In this way, the figures of our fantasies can become mirrors that help us to see what we couldn't see without them. If, for instance, I am in the grip of a powerful emotion, instead of identifying with it and saying, I am angry or I am sad, I can recognize that there is an experience happening to me, something that is visiting me. And from this frame of mind, I might rather say, anger is here, or Something sad is trying to get my attention. That is, I can start to get curious about it and I can start to wonder, who's here? In a poem titled On Angels, the poet Czesla Miwash laments the loss of our ability to sense presences that belong to other dimensions of experience. And he writes, all was taken away from you. White dresses, wings, even existence. Yet I believe you, messengers. He then goes on to affirm that there is something meaningful that speaks to us. A voice that seems to speak from unexpected places now and then at a matinal hour if the sky is clear in a melody repeated by a bird or in the smell of apples at the close of day when the light makes the orchards magic here it is a numinous experience of the world that inspires miwash's imaginings his fantasies but he lets it really be an other, a messenger, 
an angel and he begins to speak to it. And by paying attention to our fantasies and participating with them, we begin to know about the whole cast of characters that play various roles in our psychological life. It's important that we're able to learn when it's an angel speaking in our imaginations and not a devil. Not so that we can banish the devil's voice. We want to be able to discern that too, to understand how it operates, how it sneaks around our defenses and gets us doing what we don't want to do. And perhaps we even need that devil from time to time to help us break a personal taboo that might be holding us back in some way. And we want to know the childlike voices that know how to play, the serious voices that know how to get down to work, the wise voices that know how to answer the questions we can't answer and solve the problems that keep us stuck. By engaging with our fantasies, all the figures and voices that people our inner lives, our perspective is broadened. We see more and more. As Mary Watkins writes, we develop a sense of self which grows to tolerate conflict, ambiguity, and subtlety. A self which practices its empathy, humor, understanding, and compassion on those within, as well as those without. In other words, fantasy makes us more human. Far from leading us away from real life, fantasy leads us more fully into life, more fully into the world, more fully into connection with the richness of our own souls. As Jung once declared, developing fantasy means perfecting our humanity. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.